Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. In today's message from Dr. Neufeld, we'll continue to study the book of Philippians in our series called The Fellowship of the Gospel. So let's begin as we turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. When runners run a race, both the nearness of the finish line and the glory of the prize are great motivators. If you told athletes to simply run without telling them the end point or the prize, well, I suspect they'd be much slower, and I also suspect that a great many of them would drop out. And yet, as I have seen it, many discipleship programs do not actively teach people about heaven, nor do they teach people to actively train their minds to anticipate it. And so people's motivation for faithful living is cut out from under them, and all that's left is a dreary call to duty. But very few can carry on through that motivation alone. And so other motivations of life, immediate gratification, the riches of this world, the praise of men, leisure, the making of a name for ourselves become the greatest motivation for behavior. And so many Christians fight the temptations of the world by whipping themselves with the law or the commands while the world draws them with the allure of rewards. And this in the long term is a losing battle. Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor in England in the 16th century. In his book, The Reformed Pastor, has become a staple and an indispensable guide for many a pastor. I'd like to quote him on a subject of motivation for Christian living. Here's what he says. It is a most lamentable thing to see how most people spend their time and their energy for trifles while God is cast aside. He who is all seems to them as nothing, and that which is nothing seems to them as good as all. It is lamentable indeed, knowing that God has set mankind in such a race where heaven and hell is their certain end, that they should sit down and loiter or run after childish toys of the world, forgetting the prize that they should run for. You know, in today's text from Philippians, we're going to see that this is precisely Paul's concern. We know that this church in Philippi is a model church, but we also know that the long-term effects of persecution and the possibility of misunderstanding and selfishness could undercut all their efforts. And so he has written them, urging them to live a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel. He's taught them to discipline their thinking patterns and to adopt the mindset of Jesus, and he's commanded them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. But now he becomes practical, and in so doing, while he gives concrete examples of faithfulness, he does so by reminding the Philippian Christians never to take their eyes off the prize. I'm reading today from Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You know, in our last session, we considered the importance of obedience. We said that upon conversion, God places his seed into our hearts, causing us to want to do God's will and also giving us the power to fight the battle for holiness. 
But even though God has put these holy impulses into believers, if they will not work them out or fight to maintain obedience, they will fall into disobedience and allow pride and rivalry and conceit to rule them. So what do we make of the person who claims to have accepted Jesus into his or her heart, but has no desire for obedience? What do we make of the guy or gal who's sleeping with his girlfriend or she with her boyfriend and says, you know, I don't see a problem with this. I can be a Christian. I just don't have to be passionate about obedience. Well, the answer is found in 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Did you hear that? Your desire for obedience confirms the authenticity of your salvation. If the desire is not there, there is no salvation. And that's one of the reasons why people who are not fighting for holiness in their lives have no inner conviction of the assurance of their salvation. Now, in reading of Philippians, we're only halfway there. Yes, it's true that obedience to the commands of Christ is the outcome of our salvation. Also, this battle for holiness is intensely serious. Even though it originates in God, it must be attended to and fanned into flame at all times. And by the way, and this is a natural application of this point, we know that there is a means of grace that God gives believers. Daily Bible reading, daily prayer, fellowship with believers in the local church, regularly placing ourselves under the teaching of Scripture, partaking in the Lord's table. Well, these are some of the means that God uses to give us the tools to fight the battle or to work out the implication of our salvation. When we do not utilize the weapons God gave us, we stop fighting the war. But let's get back to our passage. Remember, in the last section, Paul has reminded believers not to despair in their fight. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, of course, Paul is never just a theologian describing what the new birth brings. He has something very specific in mind for the Philippian Christians. There's something of obedience he wants them to work out right now. And what is it? Well, look again at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. See, there's a command. Ah, is this what Paul has been driving at? Is this what he was keenly interested in when he told them to work out their salvation? Well, yes, I think it was. And we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, after all, he's been arrested in Jerusalem for no good reason. He's been held two years without a trial. Now he's in Rome waiting for Caesar's tribunal. And what has he been doing? We notice that he's been praying for the Philippian Christians, remembering them with great joy. And he's been sharing the gospel with the Roman elite imperial guard so that everyone in Caesar's elite troops is now talking about Jesus. And the church in Rome that was lagging is now strengthened. And he's awaiting a highlight of his life, the opportunity to share the gospel in his upcoming trial with the brightest legal minds in the city of Rome. And he's literally dancing in his cell at the honor of his holy calling. He's amazed that God in his mercy would have allowed him so great of a privilege. And that's what he wants of the Philippians. They are also facing their own persecution, and they will struggle to put the needs of others ahead of their own. And the word grumbling here is a word that calls to mind the wilderness wanderings of Israel. You remember that God had so wonderfully revealed himself to Israel. They were God's special people, and that was good. God was going to take them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, where they would be free from slavery, and that was very good. And God was going to give them all a land of their own governed by his righteous laws. I mean, that was great. 
But that was all in the future. And here in the present was the heat of the desert. You know, I remember visiting Sinai a number of years ago and being put up in a hotel without air conditioning and in which the sand blew through the cracks in the door, leaving the entire place dusty. And my first words were, am I supposed to sleep in this? And then my wife, Kathy, reminded me that the last group that were housed there felt the same way. And I said, oh, yeah. And I remember that God didn't take very kindly to their grumbling either. You suddenly, for the first time in my life, I didn't feel as condemning toward ancient Israel, for I saw, sadly enough, that I had the same attitude. And then there was the manna every day for for breakfast, lunch, and supper, and the water situation, well, it definitely needed work. And, And then there was Moses, and he was way too strict, and anyone not obeying, well, the ground would open its mouth and swallow a whole lot of them. And when was this ever going to end? And then didn't they used to have leeks and garlic and a whole rich variety of food in the land of Egypt? And now they were living in a land which had some of the worst weather on earth with absolutely no arable land. I hope you see, it all depends on what you think about. You know, later in this letter, Paul will return to that theme. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers, Whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Indeed, if we only think about what's wrong, we will notice more things that are constantly wrong. But if we see the meticulously sovereign hand of God in all things directing us for our long-term good, and for the advancement of the gospel, we will see that there are reasons for thankfulness. But we're going to have to train our minds to do that unless we train our minds to think about what God is doing in everything that we do, we'll start complaining again. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling by learning to be thankful in all things, even in persecution. And when we come back, we're going to see how Paul drives our minds to thoughts about heaven. Well, Paul's words here are a great reminder of how critical it is to have an attitude of thankfulness to God in all circumstances. That's the first step in keeping our eyes on the prize. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld unpacks more key principles from this passage so we can discover how to apply it to our lives. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube a new, inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. How many of you know that there are 101 things wrong all the time? Your church has problems, and those incompetent leaders can't seem to deal with it. 
your spouse, your kids, your boss, the weather, your favorite hockey team just can't get their act together, the provincial government, well, don't get me started. I mean, I live in Metro Vancouver, and the toll on the New Portman Bridge, well, that's ridiculous. And the drivers in my province are worthy of a book filled with denunciations. And the bad service in the restaurant you ate at last night, the health care system in this country, the teacher who gave you a bad mark on your paper, the economy, the prime minister, my pastor's bad sermons, well, where will it ever stop? How many of you know that everyone complains? We all do. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just noticing. But what happens to a believer when we actually grasp Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God? And what if we begin to truly develop an attitude of deeply ingrained gratitude to God for all things? I'll tell you what happens. We will stop grumbling. That's what happens. And then comes the next line, without questioning. You know, that doesn't mean we can't ask questions, but as we all know, there is questioning, and then there's questioning. One person asks for information on why things are so and might even offer helpful advice. The other person simply uses questioning as criticism. I recently saw a T-shirt that said, Question Everything. I think, although I'd have to ask the young man who wore it, but I think he meant by that, accept no authority at all. But when Paul says without questioning, he simply means without complaining. Now let's go to verses 15 to 16. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You know, really, this whole list, blameless, innocent, without blemish, and so forth, really just speaks about three things. The first is that God's obedient people who are genuinely grateful in all circumstances are blameless and innocent. No fault can be found in them. The second is that they shine like lights in the world. That is, their attitude of gratitude is such a testimony, it's amazing. Instead of complaining, they say, you know, God's so good. God's so gracious. When they get sick, they say, I deserved worse, but God is even working this out for my long-term good. When others slander them and speak evil against them, they count it an honor to identify with Christ and speak of their union with Christ. And the third thing, they, they hold fast the word of life. You know, the word of life here is a reference to the gospel, that Christ, by his life and death, has provided salvation for them, is the transforming item in their life. You know, during World War II, when when spies were everywhere in England, a common poster that was everywhere found said, careless talk costs lives. You know, that was because when someone saw a military installation and was talking about it, a German spy was likely to hear it and report it to the German high command. Careless talk costs lives. And it does for us. Careless talk poisons our unity. Careless talk makes the gospel unattractive to the world. Careless talk blinds our eyes from the plans of God and His goodness that never ceases. But obedience transforms everything. It builds love and unity. It allows believers to put the needs of others even ahead of their own. It makes the gospel attractive and allows unbelievers to ask, you know, what it is that binds these believers together. Now, we might say Paul has said enough already. Take obedience very seriously, especially the disobedience of complaining, and replace it with the obedience of gratitude. But Paul has something very important left to say. 
In the latter part of verse 16, he says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is saying, I want to be proud that all the effort I put into you was not for nothing. Indeed, he wants to be proud of them. And I find that fascinating because the Philippians felt exactly the same way about Paul. Remember what was said back in chapter 1, verse 26. There Paul said, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You know, it turns out that Paul's behavior in his imprisonment and the Philippian believers' behavior in Philippi was reason for them to boast about the attitudes and actions of the other. They were deeply proud of the obedience they saw in the other. They're not wasting their time in this partnership in the gospel. In fact, this partnership to bring the gospel to the Roman Empire was going somewhere. It was going somewhere in their own lives. Instead of spreading unhealthy rumors about each other, they were talking about the successes of the other. You know, and this boasting is that makes verse 17 so significant. There Paul says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Now, the drink offering spoken of here is the last offering presented by the Old Testament worshiper, the one poured on top of all the other offerings. Paul is telling the Philippians that their continual obedience and their steadfastness in persecution, their thankful hearts in the city where pressure is constantly mounting, this is an offering to God. And on top of their offering of obedient thankfulness, Paul now pours his own offering, his faithfulness to God in Rome on top of theirs. His obedience and their obedience is a part of a whole offering to God. There's an additional meaning here that we should really not pass up on. Later in the book of 2 Timothy, the last book Paul writes before his death, when he is facing a second trial in Rome, he will say, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. It seems likely then that since the drink offering is the last offering, that Paul adds another meaning. If he says, I am about to die after my trial, and my death is to be poured out on top of your obedient faithfulness in this difficult hour, I will not complain. Indeed, I'm going to be joyful. And then the last word, verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. Let's return to a significant question I raised earlier. How significant is my obedience? Does it matter if I make sure that my life is worthy of the gospel? How does it matter to God? How is this related to my salvation? How does it matter to me individually and more so? How does it matter to the church as a whole? And now we're ready to give an answer. Obedience builds fellowship in the gospel so much so that we become proud of each other. But in all of this, I've deliberately missed an important phrase, and I now wish to draw it to your attention. It's found in verse 16. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud of you. See, the day of Christ that Paul refers to, of course, is the second coming of Jesus when rewards are handed out. Paul speaks of the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, where each will receive the reward for what they have done. And Paul has an image here, and I simply don't want us to miss this. He imagines the Philippian church, along with their elders and deacons, standing before Christ and hearing Christ command them, Well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful in little. I now put you in charge over a great deal in the kingdom I have arranged. You will rule and reign with me in the most significant way. And, says Paul, when that happens, 
I will swell up in joy and pride that all this effort of mine and its sufferings were not in vain. We will share in the kingdom to come. You know, I can't tell you how I feel when I hear of someone whom I've led to Christ and then hear that they lead someone else to Christ or when they grow and become fully mature. When obedience becomes an issue for all of us, we start boasting over the obedience that we see in others. There forms a kind of camaraderie among us that encourages each other on. It creates a festive spirit of triumph as we watch others resist sin, submit to the Spirit, and work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And most of all, we urge each other on, never take your eyes off the prize. So obedience builds the church, and disobedience tears her down. Obedience is attractive to non-Christians, and disobedience makes them despise the gospel. Obedience fills us with joy, and disobedience makes us into fault finders and complainers. Don't take your eyes off the prize. John, this has been a great reminder of how Paul is guiding people towards being obedient in Christ and how that impacts the church, how it impacts us as individuals and our relationships. But is it possible in striving to be obedient, we can do so in the wrong way and it actually has the opposite effect? I'm sure that obedience can be legalistic and it can be condemning at every place. And in fact, it has often been that way in the church. And I think we really need to train our minds not to complain, but to actually look at other believers and be encouraged when we see that the individual who may have been failing in one area over and over again is now making slight progress. I mean, we need to come alongside them and say, I see that happening in you. I mean, I think that's the attitude that we need to encourage in the local church. Yeah, so this obedience that we have or that we need to strive for really needs to be associated and partnered with grace. Wow. I mean, yes. I mean, God has had grace on us. I mean, you know, Ben, when you say that, I mean, I just can't help but think about how God has looked at my failures in the past and how he has continued to strive with me and be patient with me. And that's how God is telling us to deal with one another. And so, yes, obedience needs to be key. I mean, I I don't know if I can overstress that, but an obedience that comes out of a condemning spirit so quickly destroys fellowship and leaves people defeated and sometimes leaving the church. I think when Paul says, do all things without grumbling and questioning, let's even strive to be obedient without grumbling and questioning. That would be a great idea. What a great lesson about obedience that we've learned from God's Word today. I hope you can join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues in our series in the book of Philippians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message with Dr. John. If you have, I want to encourage you to check out a new weekly video Bible teaching program featuring Dr. John that can be viewed on backtothebible.ca or by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And if you want to receive notice each week of a new episode and receive the accompanying study guide, you can sign up online. The first series presented and can be viewed in its entirety is Hope in Dark Times. And Dr. John's second and new series based on Revelation chapter 1 to 7 is entitled To the One Who Conquers and Has Already Begun. So check it out now at backtothebible.ca or on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. 
For more information or to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca.